0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis.
1: The pro-life message is still central to true Christianity. As we prepare this episode of the Return to Order Moment, the world faces many crises. Ukraine still dominates the front page as Vladimir Putin's atrocities come to light. So-called transgender athletes deliberately cultivate controversy to advance their absurd cause. The Biden administration gropes and blunders its way from misstep to gaffe to catastrophe on a daily basis. Uncertainty about China's next move makes predicting the future even more hazardous. In the midst of these squabbles, it is easy to push the pro-life cause away from center stage. This is unfortunate because no issue is more vital. In a few months, we will see the 50th anniversary of the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision. Well over 500 million innocent lives have been discarded during that half-century. This podcast considers three aspects of the continuing pro-life movement. First, Mr. Joseph Dunlap describes a recent pro-life demonstration in New York City. His essay is titled, Marching for Life in New York City Stirs Controversy.
0: Ukraine is not the only victim in our times of war and turmoil. The unborn are the innocent victims in the United States, and we must defend them. Thus, on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25, 2022, the members of the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP, along with the TFP-staffed St. Louis de Montfort Academy, marched down Broadway in New York City, calling for an immediate end to the genocide of the innocent. TFP Student Action was also present for the event. With bagpipes, banners, and lion-emblazoned red standards, the TFP joined the pro-life group Personhood Education New York for its annual March for Life. Fortunately, the support for the march was phenomenal. Many also recognized the efforts of TFP Student Action. Several New Yorkers yelled their support, making sure they were heard over the traffic and drum corps. One ecstatic woman on the verge of tears told one TFP member, I love you all and what you do so much, it makes me cry. If I have a boy, I'm going to encourage him to become a member of your group, unquote. A march organizer told one TFP student action member that he appreciated our efforts, Quote, I have not seen the new ones yet, but I try to watch all of your videos. Keep it up. Unquote. Although many pedestrians and drivers showed their ardent support, a few did shout vulgarities at the crowd of pro life warriors. There was an assortment of obscene gestures and words. One adamantly pro death passerby even ventured to call upon all of America to reject God, who is the giver of everything. Including life. He screamed at the TFP standard bearers, quote, Forsake God! That is what our nation needs, unquote. The members of the St. Louis de Montfort Academy band later made restitution with several magnificent renditions of God Bless America and America the Beautiful. Even with such manifest hatred for the smallest and most vulnerable of America's children, There were no counter-protesters, and the marchers ended the march in triumph. So many in our society demand social justice, yet they neglect the most unjust murder of America's unborn babies. Sadly, many even advocate abortion after birth, which is the legalization of infanticide. If America can descend to these depths of horror... Will the cry not soon be, euthanasia on demand? If it is lawful to murder a newborn baby, why not an elderly person? With this logic, no one is safe, especially the weak and most vulnerable people. Procured abortion is a sin against the Fifth Commandment, no matter when or where it is done. That is why the marchers demand abortion be banned. God cannot bless a murderous America. With serious talk of overturning Roe v. Wade, some pro-lifers might be tempted to abandon the fight. This cannot be our mentality. A Supreme Court decision may return the decision to legalize abortion back to the states. States like Illinois, California, and New York have bills written and waiting to reinstate abortion as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned. Thus, the battle is not over. We must continue defending innocent lives. However, the highest reason for our opposition is that procured abortion is a grave sin against God. This is why we marched in New York. We must fight and never surrender. God bless America.
1: Over the almost 50 years since Roe v.ersus Wade, the left has tried to derail the pro-life movement in many ways. They have used their friends in the media to make pro-lifers look alternatively scary or stupid. They have used the courts in an attempt to make pro-life activities illegal. They have used the education system to indoctrinate the young with pro-death mentality. One particularly insidious attempt has been to hang liberal causes upon the movement in an attempt to make pro-lifers appear to be hypocrites. The current variation on this theme calls itself the whole-life movement. Mr. Michael Hayes describes it and the danger that it poses in his essay, The whole-life movement tries to equate the pro-life message and climate change. It fails.
0: On March twentieth, two 2022... The New York Times published an article, How the Whole Life Movement Challenges the Politics of Left Versus Right, in which columnist and Anglican minister Tish Harrison Warren discussed the Whole Life Movement. More of an ideology than an official, well-defined movement, the Whole Life Movement initially appears to support the aims of pro-lifers in their defense of the unborn. The Times noted that among the aims of the whole-life movement are, quote, opposition to abortion and euthanasia, unquote. However, the movement swiftly diversifies from opposing the clear-cut moral evil of abortion to addressing the popular social justice issues of the day, such as opposition to, quote, nuclear weapons and the death penalty, unquote, along with proposing climate change policies. Quote, It often involves championing policies and practices such as a living wage, universal access to health care, ecological and racial justice, and adoption, notes Harrison Warren. Its pro-life sentiments come with an agenda attached. The whole life movement has been described as seeking to, quote, purify the pro-life movement of its inconsistencies, unquote. These reported inconsistencies within the pro life movement are found in the pro lifers' primary concern only for the defense of innocent, unborn life. This priority is deemed misplaced by the whole life movement. Instead, pro lifers should be equally concerned with the quote, degradation of the environment unquote, and other issues to be consistently pro life. Argue its proponents. Quote, We need a better pro life movement, one animated by whole life principles, wrote the Millennial Journal in advocating the movement. The Millennial Journal also aligned, quote, gun control and immigration reform, unquote, with the whole life movement's purview. Discussing this movement with the Times was Charles Camosi the Associate Professor of Theology at Fordham University, is described as, quote, a leader in this movement, unquote. Mr. Kamosi pointed out how the whole life movement seeks a common ground in the abortion debate. Quote, A whole life ethic can and does offer common ground that otherwise wouldn't exist within the national binary, unquote. For Mr. Camosi, Separating religion and abortion appears to be crucial. Quote, I don't like the religious secular binary when it comes to ethics, he said. Everyone, regardless of your claims about the transcendent and God and organized religion, has irreducible first principles, fundamental goods that you don't have because of arguments. If you just go down and try to reduce all of your values, you're eventually going to come to something you believe just because you believe it, and because of intuition or some other kind of authority. And sometimes it's at odds with the views of others. But I don't think we say to secular people, oh, you can't use your first principles or fundamental values to work for justice, say, to impose a view of the good unto others who think differently. If you care about justice at all— You care about imposing it on others. For mister Camosi and the whole life movement, opposition to abortion appears to be an arbitrary intuition that some people have while others, secular people do not. Thus, while affirming the right to life of the unborn, although not entirely, Mr. Camosi appears at pains to divorce this principle from any moral worldview of good and evil. Instead, opposition to abortion is portrayed as something equivalent to advocating for climate change policies, rather than a firm opposition to a moral evil based on understanding right and wrong and natural law. Thus, At first glance, the whole-life movement might generally appear to be a useful ally to pro-lifers by its professed opposition to abortion. However, that is something of a Trojan horse. The whole-life movement, by its very nature, seeks a common ground with pro-abortionists, as Mr. Camosi puts it, whereas true pro-lifers seek the irrevocable end of abortion. Indeed. Mr. Kamosi appears not to wish for the ending of abortion through legislation. Describing his vision of a future relationship between pro-lifers and pro-choicers, Mr. Kamosi wrote in 2015, attacking those he called the hardcore pro-lifers who wish to ban abortion. Quote, the position in favor of banning all abortion is frankly a political non-starter. Those who have pushed this position aggressively in the public sphere have done tremendous damage to the pro-life cause. Pro-lifers achieve our goals when we help focus the public debate on the overwhelming majority of abortions, most of which the public does not support, In his 2015 book, Beyond the Abortion Wars, A Way Forward for a New Generation, Mr. Kamosi proposed a compromise bill called the Mother and Prenatal Child Protection Act, which would win support from pro-lifers and pro-choicers. In his proposed act, he defends abortion in the cases of rape, incest, and cases where, quote, the baby posed a mortal threat to the mother, unquote. He equivocates that a mother can use abortifacient drugs in a way that is, quote, Better described as refusing aid rather than killing. Such an action, argues Mr. Camossi, is in alignment with traditional Catholic moral theology. However, critics note his compromise is ultimately a surrender to the culture of death. As Anne Hendershot, a professor of sociology and director of the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life at the Franciscan University of Steubenville wrote in 2015 about Mr. Camosi's ideology, quote, Camosi must know that we can never really end the abortion wars as long as unborn children are still viewed as aggressors or invaders and can still be legally aborted. Faithful Catholics know that there is no middle ground on this. The pro life side has to prevail in any war on the unborn. Unquote. Writing some years before Mr. Camosi's recent interview with The Times, Jillian Vider, an advocate for the whole life movement, summarized the essence of the ideology. Quote, it presents what has traditionally been seen as a conservative issue in a progressive way. It also includes some traditionally progressive issues in a way that should appeal to conservatives, she wrote. Furthermore, Miss Veder highlights how the movement abandons the clear teaching of morality in favor of a gray area on abortion. She protests how opposing abortion and defending innocent human life has become a black-and-white issue, proposing instead a new morality without any clear principles. Quote, The pro-life and pro-choice movements simply do not fit my ideals. They turn large-scale moral debates into black-and-white issues with simple answers to complex questions. Identifying as whole life, however, signifies openness and willingness for change. It also presents an opportunity for Christians to abandon traditional ideas that are long out of date and become aware of important modern-day causes such as the empowerment of women and girls." The whole life movement's philosophy promotes a complete absence of moral values. It centers not on good and evil, but on compromise. By abandoning moral teachings, the whole life movement is thus able to, 1. Appear pro-life and argue against abortion while supporting abortion in many cases. 2. Present the conservative issue of defending innocent life in a progressive way while abandoning the moral values which are deemed to be conservative. And three, divorce the evil of abortion from the precise teaching of good and evil, and instead present it as a social issue that is not based on constant moral values and thus open to change in particular circumstances faithful Catholics must be wary of attempts made to compromise with abortion advocates. As Dr. Hendershot notes once again, there is an inherent danger posed by Mr. Kamosi and the Whole Life Movement, which must be firmly opposed. Quote, as long as Camosi continues to claim that his writings and policy suggestions— including his newly proposed Mother and Prenatal Child Protection Act, are consistent with defined Catholic doctrine, faithful Catholics will have to continue to denounce them. There is nothing whole about denying the difference between good and evil. They are heaven and hell apart.
1: Another attempt to derail the pro-life movement is an argument that usually travels under the phrase, quality of life. This argument holds that many lives are so full of physical or mental suffering that they are not worth living. The pro-death movement then tries to make itself look sympathetic by arguing that the humanitarian thing to do will be to end those lives before birth. Many Western European nations use this evil philosophy to routinely eradicate children with Down syndrome and other handicaps. Unfortunately, this argument is often made so forcefully that otherwise well-intentioned people find it convincing. It is important to understand and remember that these lives do indeed have value. In his The Hidden Life of Mary Long, Mr. Norman Fulkerson describes the surpassing value of one such life
0: saintly souls often remain hidden from the eyes of the world and are only discovered by chance. In this way, Mary Ann Long is a source of inspiration in much the same way as St. Therese of the Infant Jesus. Like the little flower, Mary Ann provides a valuable lesson that anyone can live a fully Catholic life and die a saintly death by simply accepting God's will. This is especially true in our present world, where people's lives are judged by the pleasures they enjoy and where useless lives are extinguished before birth or shortened in old age. The only book about this unique little girl, titled A Memoir of Mary was written by the Dominican nuns who cared for her in Atlanta, Georgia. The only photo shows only the profile of Marianne, sitting in a wheelchair. The reason that we only see part of her face is where the story of Marianne begins. She was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1946. The memoir does not mention the day of her birth or the name of her parents. We only know that they were Dolly and George Long because she is buried beside them in Louisville's St. Stephen's Cemetery. At the age of three and a half, she was afflicted with a cancerous tumor on the left side of her face, which required the removal of her eye. The doctors gave her six months to live and told the parents they could do nothing more for their child. This was a particularly heavy blow for Mrs. Long, a mother of three whose own health was not good. At the doctor's recommendation, they decided to send Mary Ann to Our Lady of Perpetual Help Free Cancer Home in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a painful decision for the parents, but they had no other solution. The home in Atlanta received a letter from the Louisville Hospital about the girl heading their way. The patient, it explained, is a very lovable little girl and one who touches the hearts of all who come into contact with her. It is worth noting that neither of Mary's parents had any religious affiliation. Although Mr. Long was baptized a Catholic, his mother had fallen away from the faith. This might have been the reason for their unease in sending their ailing daughter to a home run by Catholic Dominican nuns. Mary Ann herself had no such fear. When they arrived at the home, Sister Veronica, who was the first to see the child, held out her motherly arms. Marianne instinctively flung herself into her maternal embrace. One sister wrote down a first impression of the child. Quote, As I entered the ward, I saw just one side of the child's face, a lustrous, sparkling brown eye, clear, bright skin tending toward olive, and a faint flush high on her cheek, a delicate straight nose, all of this framed by light brown, wavy, curling hair, Made a symmetrical, clean cut profile. Unquote. The sister then describes the rest of her face with, quote, a swollen left cheek and a closed eye socket, unquote, but it did not repel her. Mary showed no shyness about her affliction. Quote, she expected to be accepted for herself, unquote. Mary quickly moved from one patient's bed to another spreading sunshine and comforting those with whom she shared the same illness. It was the beginning of a most unique religious vocation. Indeed, before her death at age 13, she was admitted into the Third Order of St. Dominic as a tertiary. Over the next nine years, for a girl who only expected to live six months, Mary was a normal little Kentuckian in every respect. She had a dog named Snappy, loved Dagwood sandwiches, and played hide-and-seek with her sisters when they came to visit. She was also mischievous, but her pranks were not meant to harm, but rather uplift the spirits of those around her. Before long, Mary Ann began to ask questions about the Catholic faith. When told about the true presence, she longed to be included in the heavenly banquet and wept when she could not receive communion with the nuns. She loved to talk about the baby Jesus and was profoundly moved by our Lord's passion and death. When one nun first showed her the stations of the cross, Mary very closely examined the second fall of our Lord. Moved with pity, she exclaimed, Oh, poor Jesus! She was eventually baptized with the somewhat reluctant permission of her parents. They were bewildered by their daughter's conversion, but even more so with her apostolic fervor. Mary Ann desired that her sisters convert, especially Sue, who showed openness to the faith. Sue made frequent visits to the home and was very impressed with Mary's fervent devotion, especially for the Eucharist. She, too, desired to receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Before long, Sue began religious instruction back in Louisville. She was eventually baptized and received her first Holy Communion in Atlanta among the nuns while kneeling next to Mary Ann. Winnie, the oldest of the sisters, was also at this ceremony and shortly afterward converted to Catholicism. Finally, there is the story of a 20-year-old female patient named Charlie May. Her maladies were of such seriousness as to leave her bedridden. Mary would do little things like brush her hair and keep her company. One night, our little apostle asked Charlie to join her in evening prayers. I don't know how to pray, said Charlie. Mary immediately offered to teach her, which led Charlie to ask questions about the faith. Mary could not answer some of her inquiries and pointed her to the nuns. Charlie, too, was eventually received into the church. People often tried to downplay her deformed face and hideous looks. Once a nun, seeing Mary in a new dress, commented how pretty she was. No, sister, she gravely responded, I'm not pretty. On another occasion, a visitor asked the child why she did not pray to God for a cure. She gently smiled and said, this is the way God wants me. This admirable acceptance of suffering was also manifested when her mother tried to take Mary to a plastic surgeon. Once again, the child insisted she was the way God wanted her to be. However, the memoir astutely points out that Mary was intelligent enough to know that God might have wanted her to be less than perfect, but her family did not. A self-styled faith healer once found his way into Mary's room. The Lord can heal you, Mary Marianne, he yelled. Not getting the response he expected, the healer repeated the same phrase three more times with ever greater insistence. I know he can, Mary sternly replied, but it doesn't make a bit of difference if he heals me or not. That's his business. Through all her suffering, Mary found great consolation with thoughts of heaven, the angels, and the perfection of a glorified body. When I get to heaven, she once said, I'll have two good eyes, and I'll run around heaven and be able to see everybody there at once. In September 1958, the first death knell sounded for the valiant youngster. One nun entered her room to check and was shocked to find her bed soaked with blood. The little patient had suffered a severe hemorrhage and was weak from the loss of blood. Over the next several months, she endured similar episodes until one proved fatal the following January. The Dominican sisters then gathered around her bed, as was their custom when one of their own was dying. They sang the Salve Regina. Mary looked up and was so enchanted that she asked them to repeat it. She slid into unconsciousness, but upon awaking, saw the lighted candle which the nuns had placed by her bed. Marianne reached over toward the soft glow of the taper and repeated again and again, Dear Jesus, I love you. At three o'clock on the morning of January twentieth, 1959, Mary Marianne asked for her rosary. As she slipped the beads through her fingers, she dozed off and died a peaceful death. Today, we do not appreciate lives like Mary Ann's or value her sacrifices. We prefer the frenetic intemperance of a world without restraint. We will only know in eternity the value of the sufferings Mary Ann Long so patiently endured during her short life. In a world that chases after celebrities and yearns for earthly recognition— This child lived a hidden life and now rests in anonymity. Yet her name and heroic feats are most certainly written in that marvelous book of life, hidden from the eyes of man, but precious in the eyes of God.
1: This concludes The Pro-Life Message is Still Central to True Christianity. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.